0: Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, where two grown ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gerner, and I'm joined by my co host, Reagan Duffy. Hey, Reagan. Hello. Friends, if you are listening to these episodes as they're released, you are probably up to your elbows in holiday madness. Reagan, what are you doing to stay sane during the holidays?
1: <laughs> Good question. In our house, we celebrate both Hanukkah and Christmas, plus my husband's birthday is at the beginning of December. So that means between Thanksgiving and New Year's, it's just one intense month of traditions and celebrations, plus obligations, expectations, feeling overwhelmed by stuff and spending money. Yeah. yeah, It's also one of my favorite times of the year. So I'm always balancing between those things I really, really want to do because I love them and taking on too much and ending up in an exhausted puddle by January 2nd. That's kind of where I am. One thing I do try and do is to focus on the traditions or activities that I love the most and then try not to feel bad if I say no to other things. I want to create a magical, special holiday experience for Alice and I have to remind myself that I don't get to be the one to decide what experiences are going to be important to her and what memories she's going to form from the holidays that are going to stick with her as she grows up. She's going to have her own memories. And something I spent a ton of time on might not register at all for her. And something that seems little or silly to me might end up being a favorite holiday moment she'll cherish forever. I have to release myself from trying to curate a perfect holiday to live in her memory because that's, just not something I can do. I think that's a really a healthy attitude. It's really the only thing you can do. Yeah. I think my parents were really very good at holiday magic and I have lots of wonderful holiday memories. So I definitely pressure myself to do the same for Alice. And I think that's something that many, many, let's face it, women and moms yeah. feel very burdened by during the holidays. We feel responsible not just for the event itself, but for creating perfect memories for other people. And social media does not help in that regard. We are just bombarded by all the perfect-looking traditions and holiday experiences of other people. People who make their living doing this. It's easy to feel like we're never going to measure up.
0: Oh, no, I'm embarrassed to admit that I have like been scrolling through Instagram looking for like Christmas tree decoration ideas. Regan, I know how to decorate a Christmas tree. I don't need to look at someone's perfectly Instagram curated Christmas tree to know how to make a pretty Christmas tree.
1: Yes, you've been doing it for years. It's insane. So one holiday tradition that's become pretty important to me is the day after Thanksgiving, weirdly. That's the day we set up the tree and we decorate the house. We make things feel festive and happy and listen to holiday music or watch a holiday movie, but it doesn't have a real agenda for the day. During the pandemic, we started the tradition of making that pie day with you and your husband and some of our other good friends sometimes. And you guys all coming over to eat leftover pie from Thanksgiving and help us decorate. I'm always happy to do that because no one in your family likes pumpkin pie and there's always tons of pumpkin pie. Yes, you can eat all the pumpkin pie. I I don't know what's wrong with you guys. Pumpkin pie is the best one. Pumpkin pie is the worst, but (laughs) we are still friends anyway. Remember the year that we were really locked down for the pandemic? We weren't gathering inside at all. We set up the outdoor movie screen in our backyard and watched planes, trains, and automobiles together and just laughed ourselves silly. I love that movie. And that was really fun. One of the benefits to living in Southern California for sure. Yes. And one of the reasons I love that day is because there's no other expectations for that day. It's not competing with anything else. It's something that we can have just in our little home. And we often spend the major holidays with another family member hosting. So it's really nice to have this day when it's just at our house and it's just whatever we want it to be. It's low pressure and it's a deliberate and specific start to the holiday season. It makes me really happy every year.
0: I think that's such a great tip. The actual days like Christmas, Christmas Eve, you know, the nights of Hanukkah, those days are also loaded and so weighted. So, you know, if there is another day that you can have like a little special holiday tradition that's lower pressure and that doesn't feel like it needs to be something that is, you know, something you're pulling off every year, that's wonderful.
1: Yeah. We usually travel to Austin for the holidays to be with my sister and her family. My mom and my stepdad come too, and we all really enjoy being together. My sister May has three kids close in age to Alice, and the middle one is exactly Alice's age. And they have a very, very close friendship. So I love seeing the kids do all of the holiday fun things together. One of my favorite holiday traditions we developed at May's is our gingerbread cookie decorating contest. I love it. It's it's amazing tip for you guys at home. The gingerbread people do not have to be homemade. We often buy pre-made gingerbread people. Okay. That really is letting people off the hook because making gingerbread is a hassle. It is. We've done it a few times when we had the time and the inclination and honestly, gingerbread cookies are kind of a pain in the butt to make. They are. Yeah. We often just buy the pre-made ones. You can get them in kits. Amazing. And we all get to decorating our ginger people with insane amounts of frosting and candy. And again, store-bought frosting. We're not making fancy piping bags full of stuff. We just buy a bunch of store-bought frosting or the, the gel kind in the tubes. And all of us do it. The adults, down to the kids. Even when my niece was a toddler, we'd let her do one. And then when they're all done, we lay them all out and we vote on them. We take pictures of them and we post them on social media and invite all of our friends and family to vote on the cookies too. And then we do a big award ceremony. Besides family favorite and social media, darling, we will come up with all sorts of categories. Most creative, best use of sprinkles, most abstract. I mean, we'll make most a- abstract is necessary with the really young kids. Oh, for sure. I think <laughs> definitely. What's abstract? It means good. <laughs> it means colorful. It means colorful. You did a good job. So we make a big production of the awards and everyone gets one, which are only for bragging rights. And then we let the kids eat the cookies. And the year that we were all locked down for the pandemic, we even did this tradition by Zoom. And the kids really look forward to it every year. You don't have to make them Instagram worthy. In fact, the cookies are never Instagram worthy when they're done. Well, it depends on what you like to see in your Instagram feed, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) But it's always the point is the process and to do it together. And the point is the investment, right? Everybody's invested in
0: it and wants to have fun and is committed to like doing something together.
1: Yeah. So what about you, Kelly? What are your holiday plans? Are you either embracing or hiding from holiday madness? Well, be honest. It's just us here. (laughs)
0: Well, (laughs) I'm going to try to embrace the holidays this year, but I feel you on the pressure to make magic during the holidays. So the background for our listeners is that I'm the only girl in my family. So whenever it's the holidays and we're celebrating with my dad, it's just my dad, my brothers, my husband, and me. And I always feel like everything falls on my shoulders, right? Because, you know, you're the girl. Mm-hmm. So and that is making sure there's activities to do and movies to watch and meals and snacks and just like fun things to make sure that everybody's having a magical holiday. And I did that for years and years and years, starting when I was a teenager. I made my first full Thanksgiving dinner by myself when I was 14. That is wild.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm deeply
0: impressed. I was really proud of myself, that you know, now at age 40, I look back at that and I was like, oh, like, what What were you doing? You should have been locked in your room reading Anna Green Gables, not Seriously. making turkey for your whole family. You know, all through my early adulthood, I was carrying that on. It really burned me out. <laughs> To be honest, it really made me resent my family and the holidays. So for the past two years, three years, actually, I think starting in 2019, I canceled Christmas and Thanksgiving just to have a break. Yes. Um, (laughs) And the pandemic made it an easy excuse. But the reality was I was just too tired of holding up the families for six full grown adults all by
1: myself. Yeah, that's too many.
0: Yeah. So coming from that experience, I'm really aware when I see other women overextend themselves during the holidays. I mean, one of many reasons I appreciate our friendship, because I really appreciate your perspective on just doing what feels meaningful to you. And I hope that everyone who feels that burden of magic creation and merrymaking and kinkeeping to remember that the holidays are also a time for you to feel festive and fun and take some time to relax
1: from the everyday stress. Yeah, you get to have a magical holiday too that does not have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be fancy. It can just be whatever makes you
0: feel festive and cozy and makes the season feel special and different from the everyday. So I've been thinking a lot about it. And this year, I'm really looking forward to continuing our holiday traditions with you and your family. Yay. I love <laughs> I love getting to be on the judging panel for the best gingerbread people. That's always one of my favorite moments in the lead up to Christmas. I love that you include so many of us and we all kind of get to be a part of your extended family. My husband and I live in a part of town that's known for its Christmas tree lane. So we will drive down with hot chocolate and Christmas carols on the radio. And then because I really love singing and caroling, I'm hoping this year to find a good sing-along messiah. The Messiah is a famous choral piece by Handel, and it's pretty common around the holidays to find local churches who will just sort of like open up their doors and anyone who has a songbook and knows the piece can come on in and sing it. Those were mostly canceled during COVID recently, but they're back. For me, there's really nothing that will get me in the spirit faster than singing the Hallelujah Chorus at full voice. I think my challenge for myself this year is to spend Christmas with my family without taking on the work of planning and preparing activities and meals and all of that for everyone. So just being okay with it, you know, even if it means we just sit on the couch and stare at each other, so be it. Not every holiday has to look like a Hallmark movie, and it doesn't mean you love your family any less if your holiday celebrations are quieter.
1: Amen. I hope your people step up this year and help create a little holiday magic for you listeners if you need permission to have a quiet simple holiday this year look no further than anne of green gables christmas is a part of this book but in a very restrained way matthew gives anne the beautiful dress with puffed sleeves for christmas and the avonlea school children put on a christmas concert to the delight of the townsfolk christmas in avonlea evokes meaningful gifts from the heart and displays of community togetherness no mall santas Instagram ready decorations, credit card debt, or surveillance L's anywhere in Avonlea. To jump into the episode finally,
0: today's episode is about the girls of Avonlea, Anne's friends and her peers. Of the Avonlea girls, Anne only designated Diana as a true kindred spirit and bosom friend, but she had other girls her age in her orbit Jane Andrews and Ruby Gillis, and of course, the snide Josie Pye, who is the very definition of a frenemy. As we mentioned in previous episodes, the Avonlea Schoolhouse was one of the primary centers of community in town. The children attended for social connection as well as education, and part of the fun of these books is watching the kids mimic the adults in the town with their friendship and courtship rituals. We learn a lot about the people of Avonlea through their children. So, you know, let's talk about the Avonlea School's social dynamics and friendships. Yes, let's get into it. So our quote of the episode launches us right into a breathtaking Avonlea autumn scene as the girls go back to school. The birch path was a canopy of yellow and the ferns were sear and brown all along it. There was a tang in the very air that inspired the hearts of small maidens tripping, unlike snails, swiftly and willingly to school, and it was jolly to be back again at the little brown desk beside Diana, with Ruby Gillis nodding across the aisle and Carrie Sloan sending up notes and Julia Bell passing a chew of gum down from the back seat. Anne drew a long breath of happiness as she sharpened her pencil and arranged her picture cards in her desk. Life was certainly very interesting. For today's story club, we were thinking about how children and childhood take center stage in most of the Anne books. Anne is either a child herself, teaching children, or raising her own children in all but two books, Anne of the Island and Anne's House of Dreams, and some would say that Maude is at her best when depicting children in their antics. As it happens, though, we are not among those who would say that, (laughs) since we are currently trying to figure out how to talk about Anne of Avonlea without ever mentioning Davy and Dora. (laughs) But for fans of Anne, the childlike wonder and the humor are what make these books so special and enjoyable.
1: Seriously, I'd like to delete Davy entirely from the Anne books. Oh, it's so annoying. So annoying. We first meet children other than Diana when Anne goes to Avonlea School on September 1st. Marilla is concerned, knowing that Anne is a strange little girl, but Diana has already given Anne some background about what the school and the other kids would be like. Anne ends up being pretty popular from day one, which makes sense since she comes in with Diana's seal of approval, Diana being the Avonlea insider, and because an unknown girl in a small town school where everyone has known each other their whole lives will always be interesting.
0: Anne tells Marilla, there are a lot of nice girls in school and we had scrumptious fun playing at dinnertime. It's so nice to have a lot of little girls to play with. But of course, I like Diana best and always will. I adore Diana. I'm dreadfully far behind the others. They're all in the fifth book, and I'm only in the fourth. I feel that it's kind of a disgrace. But there's not one of them has such an imagination as I have, and I soon found that out. Ruby Gillis gave me an apple, and Sophia Sloan lent me a lovely pink card with May I See You Home on it. I'm to give it back to her tomorrow. And Tilly Bolter, let me wear her bead ring all afternoon. Can I have some of those pearl beads off the old pincushion in the garret to make myself a ring? Oh, and oh Marilla, Jane Andrews told me that Minnie McPherson told her that she heard Prissy Andrews tell Sarah Gillis that I had a very pretty nose. Marilla, that is the first compliment I have ever had in my life. And you can't imagine what a strange feeling it gave me. Marilla, have I really a pretty nose? I know you'll tell me the truth. <laughs> uh. These small demonstrations of acceptance and even affection, an apple, a pretty card, borrowing a treasured possession, and a sweet compliment, let Anne know right away that she would fit in, even if she was behind in her studies. Our first glimpse of the Avonlea girls at school is that they are a generous and fun little group. In fact, we also learned the girls divide up their lunches and to eat a particularly special treat all by yourself, or even to share with only your best friend, would mark you as awful mean. There's clearly a deep sense of camaraderie and caring
1: among them. This portrait of childhood friendships, particularly friendships between girls, rings so authentic well over a century later. I'm thinking of the way that kids exchange little tokens, complicated currencies that adults don't understand but are important and powerful to them.
0: And then Diana also clues Anne into Avonlea School's Take Notice board, which I guess I picture as kind of a bulletin board. What do you think it is?
1: Could it be anything as official as a bulletin board? It doesn't seem like it. Maybe it's just a space on a wall out of the way where the students pin little pieces of paper, like gossiping. Or is it more if you want to see if someone likes you, you post a take notice and see how they react, kind (laughs) of like passing a note, check yes or no, but you could do it kind of anonymously. Maybe. <laughs> you know what? I wonder if it's part of
0: um, like a little shed where the kids wait for the school teacher to open the door in cold or inclement weather.
1: I feel like a Canadian one room schoolhouse would likely have such a structure. Oh, yeah, that sounds exactly right. Kind of like where they might hang their coats or leave their boots. Mm hmm.
0: At any rate, the take notice board is where all the little gossip notes are recorded. Most importantly, who has a crush on whom? Anne denounces the take notice board as silly while also feeling embarrassed to think that she would never have her name on it. Diana, an extraordinarily pretty child,
1: has her name up all over this board. And doesn't seem embarrassed by it at all. Oh, no, she's delighted. Mm I imagine it as an old fashioned equivalent of writing up who's dating who on like bathroom walls or Snapchat or whatever the social media platform is that the youths are using these days. (laughs) It's kind of like shipping the kids in your class. Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you know a teen client of mine told me that last year there was an anonymous, I think, Instagrammer at her school the other year who was shipping all of the kids in their class and everyone was wondering who it was. There was this whole, like, gossip about who could it be that's posting all these anonymous ships. I guess it doesn't matter the generation or the medium. There's teens will be teens. That's wild. I can see how tantalizing that would be for those kids trying to
0: figure out who this anonymous poster was. But, you know, similar ideas, slightly different technology. We had someone in my law school who ran a Twitter account inspired by, do you know the account Overheard in New York?
1: Oh, I remember that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like funny things people say on the subway or whatever, and they uh-huh. just get, like tweeted out like hashtag Overheard New York. Well, so we had someone in my law school who did something similar. I forget, they might have called it like Overheard in Law School or the name of our School or whatever, anytime someone said something particularly obnoxious, and let's face it, it was law school, so plenty of chances to be <laughs> obnoxious. No. <laughs> shocking, right? It would wind up on this Twitter account. And so I remember one time I said something in my Civ Pro class that made it to the account, and I was so embarrassed. Although I kind of think that, like Anne and the Take Notice board, I would have also regretted it if I made it all the way through law school and never did or said anything postworthy. Yes. Diana gives Anne and the readers the background information on the Pie family. Okay, Reagan, I have questions. What kind? Of, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of like small town axiom is this, where it's just, I guess, well known and accepted that all
1: pies are rude and terrible and contrary? I think that's sort of how small towns are. You have generations of families, and each family sort of ends up filling a particular role in the town that maybe is a self fulfilling prophecy. Oh. This is very much a running theme in a lot of Maud's books. We'll see this again in Anne of Windy Poplars with the Pringles in particular, but it shows up in a lot of her short stories and a lot of her explorations of community throughout most of her books.
0: I wonder if my question there is, is sort of a shorthand that Maud was using, or is this really a thing
1: where you just might have a well-known family in town where everyone is terrible? I think there is something to the sort of family personality. Oh, this family is well-known for being stubborn, and this family is well-known for being kind of cheap, and this family is well-known for being very flighty but very sweet. It becomes sort of a shorthand for knowing the people in your community once you know what family they're from.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. And then, of course, I guess the rumors all end up being true because Josie Pye, who is Anne's age and in her class, is a total pain. The first thing we learn about Josie is that she looked up a word during her spelling test Uh and Diana confirms to Anne that, quote, those pie girls are cheats all around. Diana goes on to explain that Gertie Pie put her milk bottle in Diana's place in the brook and Diana no longer speaks to Gertie, naturally.
1: I love how even where the milk bottles are put are stratified in the schoolhouse society. (laughs) But again, that really tracks with kids and what's important to them. I once had a blowout fight with my sixth grade best friend over where we sat on the bus. Oh, that sounds important. Yes, we were both school patrols and as such had to sit in one of three places on the bus. So there was like the first seat patrol, the middle seat and the last seat. But you couldn't have two patrols in the same seat. Right, You had to spread yourselves out across the bus. And I got on the bus a stop or two before Marianne and she accused me of always taking the back seat, which is definitely the coolest seat. Oh, yeah, back of the bus always. Yeah, the I was appalled because I had been consciously trying to alternate with her and definitely sat in the front seat way more often than Marianne because I like the bus driver. So I like chatting with him. So I, felt, I can't believe that Marianne didn't give you credit. I know. I felt attacked and misunderstood. And that really what it was was Marianne wanted to claim the back seat all the time and would not share it with me. No, Marianne, come on. You got to trade. Really? We had a huge fight about it, which is highly unusual for me. I was not (laughs) given to fighting with friends, which tells you how important this was to me and how much I felt like I was in the right. Mm -hmm. And then we gave each other the cold shoulder for several weeks. Eventually, it went back to normal without us even talking about it. I'm just saying I understand, Diana, and why where one puts one's milk bottle is of significance.
0: I mean, it's just one of those things like when you're a kid, there's so few things in your life that you really have control over that you're really fighting for everything you do. Mm -hmm. So as small as these schoolhouse interactions are, whether it's the girls sharing lunches or the take notice board or the pie children being difficult, they are representing what's happening in the Avonlea community at large. The adults in Avonlea are a community minded and caring group who share what they have. It's a small town, so everyone knows who is dating whom, and I guess the pies are just known throughout for being disagreeable. Through the Avonlea schoolhouse, we learn about Avonlea town. After Anne and Diana are forbidden to play together following the Raspberry Cordial incident, Anne gets to know some of the other kids a little better. No one will ever be Diana, of course, but she's inherently social and she makes friends easily. When Anne returns to school, she finds that her imagination had been sorely missed in games her voice in the singing, and her dramatic ability in the perusal aloud of books at dinner hour. Ruby Gillis smuggled three blue plums over to her during testament reading. Ella Mae McPherson gave her an enormous yellow pansy cut from the covers of a floral catalog, a species of desk decoration much prized in Avonlea School. Sophia Sloan offered to teach her a perfectly elegant new pattern of knit lace, so nice for trimming aprons. Katie Bolter gave her a perfume bottle to keep slate water in, and Julia Bell copied carefully onto a piece of pale pink paper scalloped on the edges, the following effusion. When Twilight drops her curtain down, and pins it with a star. Remember that you have a friend, though she may wander far. (sighs) It's so nice to be appreciated, sighed Anne rapturously to Marilla that night. (laughs) The images of the children decorating their desks with little flowers cut from seed catalogs and sending each other little poems is so sweet to me, but I don't really think it's all that different from the kinds of things we did when we were kids. I remember when I was growing up, Decorating your desk with Hello Kitty and other Sanrio characters was absolutely the coolest thing. And then, of course, we all had to have extremely rad neon trapper keepers. Oh, trapper keepers. (laughs) And you know what? Even now, I still have two little Sanrio figurines on my desk at work. I have this little rocker Hello Kitty and I have a gothy Karomi. I do also have a Ruth Bader Ginsburg figurine to keep it classy and adult. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, copying out a poem as a gift kind of reminds me of like sharing song lyrics. Or sending TikToks. Oh yeah, that too. And I really need to know, what are the cool things for today's kids? How does Alice decorate
1: her desk? So here's something funny right now about Alice and her friends in class. She and several other girls have created this very elaborate scene on Alice's desk for Bob, who is a miniature origami crane. Bob? Yeah. Originally, he started on Noemi's desk. And then when they switched desks, Noemi gave him to Alice. and. (laughs) <laughs> They've all brought in little things from home for him and made him a little nest. It's very cute. He Wait, sat he's on an Alice.
0: origami crane. This is a paper crane. Yes. Okay. Just,
1: just clarifying. <laughs> yes, it is a paper crane. They brought in like little pieces of dollhouse furniture and bits and pieces of things. Oh yeah. He sat on Alice's desk and then last week tragedy. Two of the fifth grade classes switched rooms for the afternoon recently. And when Alice got back to her class, Bob was missing and his nest had been thrown across the room. Are you kidding me? She was so upset. Who would do such a thing? She started to cry. I felt so bad, especially because I think it felt a little mean spirited to her, not just an accident. Although really who can say for sure. It sounds mean spirited to me. They threw the nest across the room? I thought so. But luckily, one of her friends, the friend who made the origami crane to begin with, made a second mm-hmm. one named Bob Jr. That's a good thing about origami cranes. <laughs> so now they are building Bob Jr. a whole house out of Kleenex boxes in the classroom in their oh spare my time. goodness. <laughs> and everyone, all the other little girls in her group have brought in other little creatures to be his friends. So I don't know if it's particularly cool per se, but this is very on brand for Alice and her friends.
0: That's so funny to me, but yeah, no, it just goes to show that imagination you have at that age where it's like, we are taking this paper crane and building a whole life for it, a
1: whole ecosystem, an entire ecosystem. Anyway- At Diana's party, where Anne walked and fell from the Ridgepole, we get a little bit more information about who exactly are the girls of Diana and Anne's age. Anne tells Marilla that Diana's party is, quote, small and select, just the girls in our class. And we see the attendees, other than Anne and Diana, are Ruby Gellis, Jane Andrews, Carrie Sloan, and Josie Pye. I kind of suspect Julia Bell is there as well, but she's not mentioned being present at Diana's party. I just feel like she's that right age. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see like which of the names get repeated. Yes. So the book explains that daring was the fashionable amusement among the Avonlea small fry just then. It had begun among the boys, but soon spread to the girls. And all the silly things that were done in Avonlea that summer because the doers thereof were dared to do them would fill a book by themselves. So... A lot of mild daring goes on at Diana's party of the tree climbing or hopping around the field on one leg sort. Then Anne dares Josie to walk across the top of a board post fence, which Josie does handily. Those are like those lower fences that have maybe two or three boards that would encompass a pasture. So while it definitely took some balance and skill, it wouldn't have been too dangerous if Josie had fallen. And I'm not sure what Anne was expecting, but after Josie accomplished the dare, Anne mentioned knowing a girl.
1: What girl and when? I'd like to know. Who could walk a ridge pole? Okay, here's what I think about that. Mm. I think that Josie's smugness, the way she was flippant about how easy it was to walk the fence, is what gets under Anne's skin here. Sure. It's this very human need to knock down someone who is perpetually smug, which yeah. is Josie's thing, and to just knock her down a peg or two. I mean, it backfires, and even <laughs> if it didn't, I don't think it would have accomplished what Anne was going for here, but I understand the impulse. I just think it's so funny that she's like, oh, well, I know this girl who could walk a ridge pole. And it's like, man,
0: that is transparent. You know no such girl. Anyway, Josie took the bait and dared Anne to walk the ridgepole, which is the center point of a sloped roof, a far more dangerous proposition than a board post fence. And think, these kids were not wearing sneakers. They likely would have been wearing leather-soled shoes, so not much for traction. Anne slips and falls and avoids serious injury, thankfully, but does break her ankle. When Diana and the other girls had rushed frantically around the house, except Ruby Gillis, who remained as if rooted to the ground and went into hysterics, they found Anne lying all white and limp among the wreck and the ruin of the Virginia creeper. "'Oh, Anne, are you killed?' shrieked Diana, throwing herself on her knees beside her friend. "'Oh, Anne, dear Anne, speak just one word to me and tell me if you're killed.' To the immense relief of all the girls, and especially of Josie Pye, who, in spite of the lack of imagination, had been seized with horrible visions of a future branded as the girl who was the cause of Anne Shirley's early and tragic death, Anne sat dizzily up and answered uncertainly, No, Diana, I am not killed, but I think I am rendered unconscious. (laughs) (laughs) That scene just perfectly captures that giddy feeling of getting in over your head as a kid, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. The energy of all these kids just feeding off of each other, their adrenaline and excitement surpassing their sense of self preservation. I definitely remember getting caught up in situations with my childhood friends where egging each other on took on unexpected consequences, whether it was playing pranks on the boys in our neighborhood. I'm going to tell you, Reagan, I still feel badly for all the parents of the teenage boys in our neighborhood who endured numerous prank calls, ding dong ditches, and toilet papering from my little crew. <laughs> Or even like trying to outdo each other with tricks on our bikes. Although, you know, do you know what the scene really makes me think of? What? Alice's most recent birthday party. (laughs) Oh my goodness, (laughs) Regan. Just thinking about this makes me laugh. Okay, to set the stage for our listeners, at Alice's most recent birthday party, she and her friends were all crafting dragon gardens. So think sort of like fairy houses, but for dragons. Yes, for dragons. And this was such a genius idea on your part, because it was this great way to, first of all, use up craft supplies, of which you have many. Yes. It took a good bit of time. And at this age, at 10, the kids could do most of it with minimal adult oversight, And at the end of it, they had this built-in party favor
1: in their creations. I have to admit, I was pretty pleased with myself for figuring out how to throw Alice a dragon-themed birthday party.
0: No, the whole thing. It was such a fun idea. So creative on your part. And and they had a blast. They loved it. You and I had decided earlier that certain things, because of course I'm at this birthday party.
1: <laughs> oh, of course you're at this birthday party. There is no way we are throwing a <laughs> dragon themed crafting birthday party without your presence. Oh, of course. <laughs> so you and I had already decided that certain things
0: were going to require some adult supervision or intervention. So like I had control of the exacto knife and we had already decided we were going to keep an eye on all those hot glue guns. As you may remember, I completely fell down on the job. Oh, you did not fall down on the job.
1: I think it's the nature
0: of hot glue guns. Well, so all the girls promised me that
1: they were expert hot gluers who did not need supervision, and I took them at their word. Nobody is more overconfident than a 10 year old girl. (laughs) Well, and so they told me they could
0: do it, and I'm like, well, of course, 10 year old girls can be trusted to use a hot glue gun. They're basically adults. Who am I to say any differently? (laughs) Of course. Not an hour into this endeavor, but Alice herself ends up burning her hand on the hot point of a glue gun. You took care of Alice, and she was back in the game in no time, but the damage had been done. Reagan, do you remember this? One after another, almost all of them somehow managed to burn themselves over the course of the party. And each one of them had this little dramatic moment when they got some cool water to help soothe their skin, and then they bravely soldiered on despite their injuries. I think like these girls, they just got caught up in the drama of the moment and they all wanted a little piece of it to themselves. Although I do have to laugh that all these so-called hot glue gun experts each managed to hot glue themselves at some point. That is the last time I'm going to believe a 10-year-old when she tells me she's an expert.
1: Oh, it was so funny, too, because it was this little cascade of owls and the dramatic <laughs> need for bowls of ice water to so- soak their fingers in. You could practically predict who was going to be the next one yes. to burn themselves. You like went down a line. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there was a lot of what we talked about earlier around girls' friendships in terms of jockeying for supplies and ideas, who was sure. copying whose idea, who was hoarding all the good trinkets for themselves, who who was sneakily borrowing things off another girl's stash. But there was also lots of helping each other and complimenting each other and finding bits and pieces that would work on each other's craft project. It was such a microcosm of friendship at this age.
0: It was so fun to watch for me too, right? Because it was, and they would just go back and forth in an instant. You know, one second they're scowling at each other because someone has stolen, you know, the little trinket they wanted to use. And the next second they're, you know, best friends and, yeah, it's helping each other, you know, singing together or whatever is adorable.
1: It was. It was a good party. Anyway, back to Anne. She ends this escapade with trying to explain to practical Marilla how this had happened. And like kids everywhere, it makes perfect sense to her and none at all to the adult in the room. What would you have done, Marilla, if you had been dared to walk a ridgepole? I'd have stayed on good, firm ground and let them dare away. Such absurdity, said Marilla. Anne sighed, but you have such strength of mind, Marilla, I haven't. I just felt that I couldn't bear Josie Pye's scorn. She would have crowed over me all my life. Okay, I actually think Anne might be the wiser here. I mean, obviously
0: not so far as she injured herself on a dare, But to the extent that the Avonlea kids reflect their adult counterparts, I mean, Anne might not know it yet, but Josie is going to be present in her life for many years to come. And she's the kind of kid who will run with any ammunition she gets. So I think Anne is right in a way to make sure that Josie doesn't have any power over Anne.
1: Josie only has that power if the other girls let her have it. I feel like part of the reason that Josie Pye is the closest we have to a villain in this book is because Anne can't help herself but react. It's that sense of pride. I feel like if you just roll your eyes at Josie, she loses a lot of her power. But I know that's a lot to ask of a 12-year-old here.
0: Well, it's such an interesting point because you don't see Diana as having such an antagonistic relationship with Josie as Anne does. And I think it is in part because Diana, you know, again, our Avonlea insider, knows that just the pies are like that. And when Josie is being sort of a pain, Diana does just roll her eyes.
1: She does. She shrugs it off and was like, whatever, and moves forward.
0: Yeah. Following this moment, Miss Stacy comes to the school and she has the children put on a Christmas concert. The concert causes all sorts of upset among the Avonlea kids. We learn that after the concert, Ruby Gillis and Emma White, who had quarreled over a point of precedence in their platform seats, no longer sat at the same desk and a promising friendship of three years was broken up. Josie Pye and Julia Bell did not speak for three months because Josie had told Bessie Wright that Julia Bell's bow, when she got up to recite, made her think of a chicken jerking its head. And Bessie told Julia, none of the Sloanes would have any dealings with the Bells because the Bells had declared the Sloanes had too much to do in the program, and the Sloanes had retorted that the Bells were not capable of doing the little they had to do properly. Finally, Charlie Sloan fought Moody Spurgeon McPherson because Moody Spurgeon had said that Anne Shirley put on airs in her recitations, and Moody Spurgeon was licked. Consequently, Moody Spurgeon's sister Ella May would not speak to Anne Shirley all the rest of the winter. Doesn't this passage make you think of the Telephone Hour song from Bye Bye Birdie? Yes. I just love those passages because they really give you a sense of the community and how connected everyone is to each other. Avonlea is a small farming village, and it exists in part due to a delicate balance of neighbor helping neighbor, everybody knowing everyone else's business, and everyone knowing when to act and when to let go. So as children, the Avonlea kids get to practice living in a tightly knit community in this low stakes way. It might not be a very big deal to tell a friend that her bow looks like a chicken, but it is a good lesson to learn that if you say something unkind, you'll lose that connection with that person. Connections that can be vital if there's a hard winter or if a family member is sick.
1: All of that theatricality that Anne brings to the concert, she also brings to her friends through the story club and, of course, the unfortunate Lily Maid incident. We love seeing how game Anne's friends are by going along with her ideas. The Story Club is composed of Diana, Anne, Ruby, Jane, and apparently one or two others who felt that their imaginations needed cultivating. Who are these other kids? They They don't have names? No, (laughs) never specified. I'm going to assume that one of them is Julia Bell. Poor Julia keeps getting left out. I know. I'm sure her bow did not look like a chicken. (laughs) Anne must have been an exciting friend because with the story club, she's convincing the other girls to essentially do more homework by writing stories. And what I think is kind of cool here is that the story club is very similar to a modern day writing group where several like-minded authors will meet regularly to motivate each other and critique each other's work. Anne tells Marilla that Ruby Gillis is rather sentimental. She puts too much lovemaking into her stories. And you know, too much is worse than too little. Jane never puts any because she says it makes her feel so silly when she has to read it out loud. Jane's stories are extremely sensible. Then Diana puts too many murders into hers. She says most of the time she doesn't know what to do with the people, so she kills them off to get rid of them. I don't think that any of the other Avonlea girls are destined to be literary stars like Anne, but I think it's wonderful that they're all interested in cultivating their imaginations.
0: I'm just thinking about poor Marilla over here, staid, religious, upright, moral Marilla, listening to Anne tell her about the girls writing about lovemaking and murders. Yep. (laughs) Even better than writing dramatic stories is reenacting one. And so, one midsummer afternoon, the girls decide to dramatize Tennyson's poem about Lady Elaine, who was born down a broad stream as she lay chanting and dying. Setting aside whether the girls were thinking of this poem as an allegory for a young woman's sexual awakening, that's probably a more contemporary interpretation that wasn't part of the Avonlea school curriculum. The girls were enchanted by the poem's romantic medieval setting and found a way to act it out by pushing a small flat bottomed boat from one headland on Barry's Pond, excuse me, the Lake of Shining Waters, where it would float with the current under a footbridge to another headland. The girls had been playing by the pond all summer and had sailed this very route many times before, so they were certain it was safe.
1: Between Diana, Ruby, Jane, and Anne, there's a great deal of discussion over who should actually set sail as Lady Elaine. Diana, Ruby, and Jane all say they are too nervous, and Anne is sure the lily maid could not have red hair. Diana convinces Anne she's pretty enough to portray the beautiful but doomed damsel, and once Anne is wrapped in one of Mrs. Barry's shawls, she lies down in the boat, closes her eyes, and prompts her friends to push the boat in.
0: Oh, she does look really dead whispered Ruby Gillis nervously, watching the still white little face under the flickering shadows of the birches. It makes me feel frightened, girls. Do you suppose it's really right to act like this? Mrs. Lynde says that all play acting is abominably wicked. Ruby, you shouldn't talk about Mrs. Lynde, said Anne severely. It spoils the effect, because this is hundreds of years before Mrs. Lynde was born. Jane, you arrange this. It's silly for Elaine to be talking when she's dead. Jane rose to the occasion cloth of gold for coverlet there was none but an old piano scarf of yellow japanese crepe was an excellent substitute a white lily was not obtainable just then but the effect of a tall blue iris placed in one of anne's folded hands was all that could be desired now she's all ready said jane we must kiss her quiet brows and diana you say sister farewell forever and ruby you say farewell sweet sister both of you as sorrowfully as you possibly can And for goodness sake, smile a little. You know Elaine lay as though she smiled. That's better. Now push the flat off. The flat was accordingly pushed off, scraping roughly over an old embedded stake in the process. Diana and Jane and Ruby only waited long enough to see it caught in the current and headed for the bridge before scampering up through the woods along the road and down the lower headland where, as Lancelot and Guinevere and the king, they were to be in readiness to receive the
1: Lily Maid. We see practical Jane is ready with the necessities to see Anne off, while Ruby, of course, is giddy with nerves. The girls run off to the other headland to watch her come in, totally missing the boat, crossing the pond, and passing under the bridge. And as we know, that old embedded stake the boat scraped over caused a leak in the boat, stranding Anne, not sure about Mrs. Barry's shawl or the piano scarf of Japanese crepe, under the bridge where Gilbert Blythe ultimately rescues her. Now, the girls did see the boat sinking and not realizing that Anne was no longer in the boat, they ran hell for leather to get help. Diana's parents aren't home, neither are Marilla and Matthew, and Ruby winds up succumbing to hysterics at the Barry's house. When Gilbert delivers Anne safely to the bank, Diana and Jane are overjoyed that Anne is alive and well. I need
0: more information about what Ruby's succumbing to hysterics actually looks like. <laughs> One thing that strikes me about both of these endeavors is how highly literary they are. It's possible that I'm giving them a little more credit than is fair. The poetry of Alfred Lord Tennyson probably would have been more culturally mainstream then than it is now. But even still, the fact that Anne and the Avonlea girls are inspired by literature and poetry is noteworthy. And it's certainly preferable to being inspired by Beverly Hills and I Know 210 and Melrose Place, which was the inspiration for
1: lots of my childhood antics. In Diana's episode, we talked about how she was not permitted to go on to Queens. So while their friendship remains strong, and once again finds herself turning towards Jane and Ruby, and yes, even Josie Pie for support as they prepare for their Queens entrance exams and move to Charlottetown to pursue their education. Jane and Ruby will take the one-year course to achieve a second-class teacher's license. And Josie is just attending Queens for further education since she will never have to work. Nice to be Josie. Oh, she'll tell you that. ruby intends to teach for two years and then marry jane ever practical says she will devote her life to teaching and never never marry because you are paid a salary for teaching but a husband won't pay you anything and growls if you ask for a share in the egg and butter money i think jane might be right honestly not entirely wrong jane (laughs)
0: and I mean you know each of the
1: girls chosen paths is also
0: consistent with what they know of their personalities Diana is the dutiful daughter so she stays home boy crazy Ruby sees education and teaching as a path to meeting her future husband practical Jane wants to be able to earn a living and superior Josie will go to school not to get a job and contribute to her family but to show off having the money to get an education for education's sake and sure enough they are all themselves at Queen's Ruby gads about dressing like a grown-up, wearing longer skirts and her hair up, although she will take it down when she goes home. She's described as cheerful and good-tempered. Jane takes honors in the domestic sciences, which really seems to describe her practicality to a T. And then Josie rudely tells Anne that she's having way too much fun in Charlottetown to be homesick for Avonlea, and that Anne shouldn't cry because it makes her look red all over. Definitely not the vote of support you want on your first night away from
1: home, but that's Josie for you. After the girls acquit themselves well at Queens, they return home for the summer before continuing on their paths. The last we hear from Josie Pye is shortly after Matthew's funeral. Josie shows herself in classic form with this. Josie Pye informed me yesterday that she really thought my hair was redder than ever, or at least my black dress made it look redder. And she asked me if people who had red hair ever got used to having it. Marilla, I've almost decided to give up trying to like Josie Pye. I've made what I would once have called a heroic effort to like her, but Josie Pye won't be liked. Who says something like that after a funeral? What is wrong with her? Josie Pye. (laughs) And I think Anne is wise here. She's made a good faith effort to try being friends with Josie. Real friends. And that's certainly a kind thing, not to mention true to the way that girls are socialized then and now. But I think it's good to know when to cut your losses and just admit you don't like someone. Then you can use your time and energy with the people that are really important to you.
0: And, you know, maybe Anne will gain some of Diana's perspective on Josie. And when she is obnoxious going forward, since they're going to have to find a way to live together in Avonlea, she can just shrug her shoulders instead of getting upset about it. Yeah. So we thought we'd close doing a little where are they now type thing for each of the girls, since their futures are foreshadowed here in this book. Jane Andrews, who, as we've talked about, is plain and practical, plans to teach forever and never marry, but she dreams of diamonds, saying, hasn't it been a perfectly splendid time, sighed Jane as they drove away? I just wish I was a rich American and could spend my summer at a hotel and wear jewels and low neck dresses and have ice cream and chicken salad every blessed day. I'm sure it would be ever so much more fun than teaching school. Jane does indeed teach for several years locally and then goes out west to teach, where she meets a millionaire, Mr. Inglis, and marries him. So she does get to wear her fancy jewels. Anne says of their wedding, What with all the diamonds and white satin and tulle and lace and roses and orange blossoms, prim little Jane was almost lost to sight.
1: Good for Jane. I'm glad that Jane got her happy ever after. And she didn't end up with a husband who gets cross about egg and butter money. Ruby Gillis is a sadder story. Always boy crazy and interested in courting and bows. Ruby's plans to teach briefly and then marry never come to fruition. Mm. She develops tuberculosis, called galloping consumption at the time, and has to quickly stop teaching. Although she gets engaged to Herb Spencer, she's never healthy enough to marry and dies when she's about 19 years old.
0: It's so sad. Poor Ruby. Yeah. And then of Josie, we don't see much of, except to hear in passing that she marries an unknown man at age 22.
1: Well, good riddance to Josie Pie. <laughs> You know it'd have to be somebody who is not an Avonlea insider to marry a pie.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. An unknown man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So although Diana is the biggest friendship influence in Anne's life, we also love getting to see all the other friends and the way they bounce off of each other and form a community that grows and changes with the girls as they
1: get older. We only have time for a quick birch path today since we squandered some of our time on our discussion about the holidays, although I am glad we talked about that. Let's do a quick little detour to talk about Lord Tennyson and his poetry, the inspiration for Anne's ill-fated pond adventure. What's interesting about the way we think about Anne's scene with Tennyson's poem is that modern readers, including me up until this very week, assume that the poem is The Lady of Shalott, published in 1842, which is a 19 stanza ballad loosely inspired by Elaine of Astolat from Arthurian legend.
0: Um, I also thought that that was the poem in question.
1: Okay. Hang on to your hat, Kelly. Gonna blow your mind. (laughs) We think this because in the 1985 CBC miniseries of Anne of Green Gables, which we adore, Anne quotes a passage from the Lady of Shalott as she floats on Barry's pond. Yeah, she says the Lady of Shalott. She says, there she weaves by night and day, a magic web with colors gay. She has heard a whisper say. A curse is on her if she stay to look down to Camelot. She knows not what the curse may be, and so she weaveth steadily, and little other care hath she, the Lady of Shalott. Right, that's the poem, right? The Lady of Shalott is, as a poem, is a metaphor for the isolation of the artist and tells the story of the lady who is trapped in a tower, only viewing the world through a mirror because she is cursed. Eventually, the isolation becomes too much, and she looks at Camelot and the knight Lancelot, thus activating the curse. Knowing that she's dying, she gets in a boat and floats off towards Camelot, chanting and singing until she dies. The Lady of Shalott has often been captured in artwork. John Williams Waterhouse's 1888 painting of the Lady of Shalott shows her with red hair, so it's often been associated with this scene in the book. I bet you know exactly which painting I'm talking about.
0: I do know exactly what painting you're talking about. And it's really interesting to me, thinking about it, how that stanza and that painting and yes, the Anne of Green Gables 1980s miniseries is all sort of part of like the same cultural touchstone in my head.
1: Yes, mine too. But here's the thing. Actually, the girls were acting out Tennyson's poem Lancelot and Elaine. And we know this because they're using specific quotes lifted straight from Lancelot and Elaine in this passage. What? Here's the poem, or here's part of the poem. It is an extremely long poem. <laughs> and kissed her quiet brows and saying to her, sister, farewell forever. And again, farewell, sweet sister, parted all in tears. Oh yeah, grew- sure enough. That's exactly what Jane tells the girls to say. Yes. And then it goes on to say, in her right hand, the lily, in her left, the letter, all her bright hair streaming down and all the cover lid was cloth of gold drawn to her waist and she herself in white, all but her face- and that clear featured face was lovely, for she did not seem as dead, but fast asleep and lay as though she smiled.
0: Okay, that's right. That tracks with exactly what the girls are doing.
1: Exactly. So, this poem, Lancelot and Elaine, is one of 12 poems in Tennyson's Idols of the King, which is a cycle of narrative poems written in blank verse about Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Elaine's poem was published in 1859, along with three other poems, and they were the first four of the 12 poems published. And the rest of the poems were published in bits and pieces between 1861 and 1873. They're all very long narrative poems, and it tells the story of how Lancelot was competing in tourneys for which King Arthur was giving diamonds as a reward to the winner. Lancelot has already won eight out of the nine diamonds and plans to give them to Queen Guinevere, with whom he is in love.
0: Mm -hmm. For
1: the ninth tourney, To hide the whispers of how he loves Guinevere, he disguises himself to compete and wears a token from Elaine of Astrolat, a sweet young woman who falls for Lancelot, believing him sincerely interested in her. When she learns that Lancelot doesn't love her, but was only using her, she dies of a broken heart. Her father and brothers place her in a barge along with a letter... She's written to Lancelot and Guinevere and she floats down to Camelot where her letter is read to court and everyone thinks it's extremely sad and beautiful and that Lancelot was a fool.
0: Okay. So I see where there's like enough similarity here for the confusion, but wow, that is a totally different story and a different poem.
1: Yes. So the Lady of Shalott is loosely inspired by Elaine. Sure. Tennyson changed Astrolot to Mm Shalott and there's there's more you can research on that, but and in both poems, a beautiful and mysterious dead young woman float down to Camelot in a barge. So both work for this scene. I'm assuming why the filmmakers chose the Lady of Shalott because it uses rhyme in meter versus blank verse in Elaine. So it just works better to be spoken by Anne on screen.
0: Right. Yeah. It sounds more poetical, right? To use the word that Anne would use than sort of the blank verse in the original. Another thing that I was thinking about, you had said that Elaine's poem was published in 1859, but then the rest was kind of published in bits and pieces in the years to follow. So that would have been not quite contemporaneous, but not too long before Anne herself would have been in school. So in a way, these kids are studying like fairly contemporary literature. So for them, this is like maybe reading the Hunger Games or something like that in class, right? Something that feels pretty new and exciting.
1: Right. Right. Although Lancelot and Elaine is published in 1859 and Tennyson, of course, was already a, quite an established poet. Yeah. So the girls are probably in school. I think the assumption at this is around like 1877.
0: Yeah. Right. So it's like only 20 years old.
1: Yeah. So yeah. there you go. I have fixed a long misunderstanding that I myself was also under.
0: Yeah, literally up until moments ago, I too. That's really interesting. Okay, okay. I don't know if I'm going to go down the whole rabbit hole and reading Tennyson's Idols of the King, but we'll see, we'll see. You know, if you get some free time. We do still have time for a quick puff sleeps. So what's a friendship or frenemy moment from Anne of Green Gables that has stuck out to you?
1: I missed this as a Miss Barry reference before when we were researching her episode. Diana has told Miss Barry about the story club in her letters to her, and Miss Barry has asked to see some of their efforts. So the girls copy out what they think are their four best stories and send them off to her. Miss Barry writes back that they are the most amusing thing she's ever read. And the girls were so puzzled because their stories were deeply tragic and everybody dies in them. They did not understand why she thought that was so funny. Oh my
0: gosh, Miss Barry was just having such a great time at these kids' expense. And it's funny that you chose that one because I think My Puff Sleeve is also a Story Club reference. I'm recalling that when Anne was first telling Marilla about the Story Club and sort of their plans for the future, she explained that they were all going to save their stories and pass them down to their descendants. What? (laughs) I can tell you that whenever I read my childhood writings, I cringe. And even in the book, Anne herself says that she can't really read them anymore after a certain point and thinks they're silly. The idea that they were going to preserve these for time immemorial and pass them down to their descendants is absolutely hilarious to me. But I think it really speaks to how seriously the girls were taking it.
1: Yes. Let's close out our episode with a little moment of being inspired by Anne and her friends. I'm inspired by this line about Anne. It says, she had a genius for friendship so along that vein i'm going to recommend the book platonic how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends by dr marissa g franco now to be fair i haven't read it yet i oh just heard the, yeah sorry <laughs> but i just heard this author talking about her book on another podcast yeah just this week. And I loved what she had to say. And it's about the epidemic of loneliness that we're experiencing as a culture and the importance of connecting with others and building community, how to truly be vulnerable to connect with other people. So this is definitely going on my to be read list. And I think a lot of other folks will find something really valuable in it. So if you read it and get something out of it, let us know. That kind of makes me think of some of our conversations in our Diana
0: episode about how much time and effort and intention you have to put into building and maintaining friendships, but how totally worthwhile it is.
1: Yes. Well, and I think one of the important things that we even see here in this discussion about some of Anne's not as close friends is that it is important not just to have a bestie. In terms of the way that Anne and Diana are, but to have some of these looser connections, to have friends that you enjoy, even if they're not your best friend call from the hospital kind of person, that we need a little bit of all kinds of connections and friendships, and that they're all valuable to us.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, my recommendation is not quite as deep, but they don't all have to be profound. Sometimes it's just whatever we're loving this week. And this week for me, that is a new lip gloss I just got. We all love lip gloss, and I'm sure that Anne, Diana, and their friends would have loved this as well. So the one that I purchased is called Gloss Balm Cream. It's from Fenty, Rihanna's line. The color I bought it in is Fruit Snacks. And let me tell you what I love about this. It feels amazing on. It feels super just like luscious and moisturizing and it's not tacky, but it has that like beautiful like ombre lips effect that I've seen in like K-beauty advertisements and things Mm. like that, where it's like the color is a little bit more saturated in the center of the lip and then sort of fades out. And I just put this on and it does it automatically, right? Because I do not have the skill for that kind of
1: <laughs> that For kind of act- application.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's not within my skill set. So the fact that this lip gloss just does it for me and I get that like beautiful, natural looking flush and a good, a good amount of shine. I'm a big fan of this. So yeah.
1: I am always influenced, Kelly, by your beauty and skincare recommendations in general. And now I have to add this to my list.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, next time we see each other, you have to try it. It's really pretty. It has such like a, it has a very plush feeling on your lips, if that's a thing. You kind of feel, I don't know, it feels very fancy. Oh, um, I like fancy. Yeah, it's a really nice formula. So yep,
1: Fenty lip gloss, balm cream in fruit snacks. There you go. Thanks for joining us, friends. Please follow and like us anywhere you listen to podcasts so other kindred spirits can find us and leave us a review. Yes, please. It would mean a lot to us. Join us next time when we talk about Gilbert Blythe, my first crush. Ah, the long-awaited Gilbert episode. We'll see you then.